It's Tuesday, December 11th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It might just be the Washington job that no one wants, but there is an opening for White House Chief of Staff. The president announced over the weekend that John Kelly would be leaving at the end of the year. And the next person in line, Nick Ayers, doesn't want the job, not wanting to serve a full two years in the post. Daniel Lippman, reporter for Politico, joins us for who might be next in line for this important post. Next, it's Google's turn to get the Facebook treatment. After months of dodging requests to testify on Capitol Hill, Google CEO Sundar Pichai will be taking the hot seat today. The House Judiciary Committee has signaled that it will not take it easy on Pichai and will be questioning him on privacy, how it handles users' data, anti-conservative bias, and plans to bring Google back to China. David McCabe, technology reporter for Axios, joins us for what to expect. Finally, imagine the next time you're on vacation. You look around and realize that all the other tourists around you are taking the same picture as you. You've seen other people's pictures on social media and decide, I want to go to that same exact place and take that same exact picture. Laura Maloney, writer for Wired, joins us to help answer the question, why we all take the same travel photos. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. John Kelly will be leaving, but I don't know if I can say retiring, but he's a great guy. We'll be announcing who will be taking John's place. It might be on an interim basis. He's been with me almost two years now, as you know, between the two positions, and I appreciate his service very much. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. Let's talk about what's been going on in the White House. It's a crazy time for the president. The stock market is all over the place. Democrats are anxious and ready to get into the House starting in January. There's been movement all over the place with Robert Mueller's investigation. And we also found out that Chief of Staff John Kelly is leaving the White House at the end of the year. What do we know about why he is on the outs now? What we know is that Trump's relationship with Kelly had frayed over the last couple months. They were weary of each other and kind of gotten tired of working together. Trump didn't like that Kelly constantly told him no and said, you know, you shouldn't do this. Remember, Kelly was hired to bring order to the White House. He did his best, but it's a very tricky situation when you're dealing with someone like Donald Trump. And so eventually the relationship was not penalty anymore. And Trump and Kelly wanted a change. Kelly repeatedly said sometimes at the end of a workday, I'm leaving, I'm never going to come back, uh, kind of in a joking manner. And he described it as the worst job he ever had, reported according to uh, Bob Woodward's book. How important is the chief of staff job, especially in a White House where the president often plays by his own rules? It seems like he's not always listening to the advice of his advisors. And it's kind of even evidenced as how the rollout of John Kelly leaving uh, reports were saying that they were going to announce the resignation or you know him leaving on Monday. But then the president kind of spills the beans to reporters on Saturday. So how important is this position still? Trump has really diminished this job. It used to be the creme de la creme in uh, elite Washington, you really wanted to be chief of staff, your career would be made. But now it's kind of no one wants a job and it can only lead to bad things sometimes for your reputation because it's very hard to tame Trump. And so you have a situation where you can't get quality candidates for that job. And it's also the case that it's very hard to actually do the job. And so it's unclear what the responsibilities are because Trump is his own chief of staff and 
Steve Bannon, during the transition, he made the case, well, maybe we should just you know, not have a chief of staff. Prince can be uh, his own guy, and uh, everyone reports to him. The guy who everybody thought was going to be doing it, Nick Ayers, who was Mike Pence's chief of staff, turns out he doesn't really want the job, or he, he said he would be willing to do it, but not willing to be there for a full two years, which is what the president really wants. Yeah, Nick Ayers is a very ambitious guy. He doesn't want to be tainted by working for Trump for another couple of years, especially in this very high-profile job where things can go south. He knows that the chances of him actually being a very successful chief of staff were uh, less than ideal. Uh, And so he wanted to uh, cut his losses, and he played it very well where he looked like he was turning down the job instead of Trump was saying, well, you can't, if you're not going to commit to two years, I'm not going to take you. And so he has six-year-old triplets, and so he doesn't want to, he wanted to devote some more time with his family and not involved in the muck in Washington. I mean, as we were saying, you know, nobody really knows what's going to happen until the president finally decides who it's going to be. They're saying that Nick Ayers might be some type of interim fill-in until they can find a replacement. Uh, some names I've seen are Representative Mark Meadows, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, Budget Director Mick Mulvaney, uh, Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. So a bunch of names are being tossed around, but I've also been hearing the same thing, that some of these guys want to stay put in their own departments. They don't really want this job. Steve Mnuchin likes being the Treasury Secretary, is trying his best in that job and doesn't want to dirty his hands in the White House, where it's kind of a a leak-filled cauldron. And you look at Mark Meadows, he's enjoyed his time as a congressman in North Carolina. He doesn't want to sully his reputation, uh, but he he said he's honored by being considered for this job, and so he could be a candidate. You have people like Wayne Berman, the head of government affairs for Blackstone, who served in the HW administration. Uh, He's being considered, and so it could be a, a job for someone who's been out of politics a little bit, and they don't have to worry too much about their future career. They they're kind of just want to cap capstone with the, their best efforts to help Trump be a successful president as he you know as best he can. It's a weird situation in the White House, and we go back to you know late last week also when we were hearing about former uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson coming out against the president now saying, you know, he was undisciplined. And Rex Tillerson said that the president wanted to do things that were illegal at times. It's to say, let's get this law passed first, then you can do do it however you want. And, you know, the president lashed out right away, calling him lazy and a, a dumb as a rock. So, I mean, this is the president has unconventional ways. He comes from this fast paced business world. And all of these career people, it, it's tough for them to kind of accommodate that type of pace. And we're seeing it all over the place with all the uh, exits that have been going on at the White House. Trump had previously said Rex was very smart and had been a great CEO of ExxonMobil. And so the fact that he totally turned on him indicates kind of the loyalty he shows his members of his cabinet and former members. But it was extraordinary to see Tillerson say, well, he had to restrain Trump from violating the law on a number of occasions, that it was you know, not the best job he had. He didn't get good reviews either. Uh, and it's true that on the face, Mike Pompeo has really revived the State Department is doing a good job. Even I was talking to a former State Department official in the Obama administration. And they say that Pompeo is really a star. Uh, and Nikki Haley, she had her star rise as well. And so it's kind of Trump likes the apprentice style quality does, uh, yeah. of how he treats people. Well, for now, uh, John Kelly is going to be out at the end of the year and we'll see how quickly the president names a replacement Daniel Lippman, co-author of The Politico Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
There's no other company that has a greater control over the internet on searches than Google. And Google has not been coming to any of our hearings. 90% of all internet searches goes through Google. What about the privacy of Americans? How long do they keep those searches that are supposed to be private that right. you go through? Joining us now is David McCabe, technology reporter for Axios. We got another big day where Sundar Pichai, he's the CEO of Google, is going to be in front of a big congressional committee. We went through this already with Facebook and Twitter, but Google was absent the last time this happened. Now it's their turn in the hot seat. What are we going to be expecting? This is Sundar Pichai's first time. It's before the House Judiciary Committee, which means it's still led by Republicans up until the Democrats take over next year. And what they want to talk about is conservative bias that they allege exists on Google's platforms, even though they, they've never really provided a lot of evidence that that bias exists. It's something concern we expect them to raise. But it'll also be an important time to see how the Democrats, who will eventually be in charge of this committee, have a lot more sway over these issues, how they approach these questions around Google's power and their ability to handle consumer data. The big question I have, is this going to be kind of like the last hearing where the senators were going one way with their line of questioning and it just wasn't matching what Mark Zuckerberg was saying? And that there's kind of this big disconnect and nobody was understanding each other at all. Are we expecting something like that to happen again? That's absolutely something we'll be watching for, whether or not lawmakers grasp the kind of core technical concepts that allow you to understand some of the substantive questions about Google's business. That said, I think we've also seen a trend over time, which at least in some cases, lawmakers have learned from previous mistakes. The Senate Intelligence Committee, when they had that hearing with Sheryl Sandberg and Jack Dorsey, seemed way more on top of it than some of their other Senate colleagues had been with Mark Zuckerberg. And even the House hearing following Mark Zuckerberg's Senate testimony seemed to have more of a grasp of some of the issues, although not, not all of them and obviously not uniformly. One of the interesting parts of this also is that Sundar Pichai is the CEO of Google, but Larry Page is the big boss, the CEO of Alphabet, their parent company. So it'll be interesting to see because largely Larry Page has been out of this whole conversation. We're expecting some of the questions to get pretty tough. It's going to be all on Sundar's shoulders. And Google has gone to extreme lengths over the last year to keep the company shielded from a lot of the very public scrutiny versus the more behind the scenes briefings and wranglings that, that happen in Washington. They've shielded the company from a lot of the public appearances that Facebook has sort of leaned into. And that's been especially true with senior leadership like Sundar and Larry, who they've essentially tried to keep from this sort of appearance and eventually just got to the point where they had to offer someone up to someone and, and it was Sundar and a half sure to me. And while uh, Republicans are going to be focusing a lot on suppression of conservative voices and things like that, there's this also plan for Google to get back into the Chinese market with a search engine. I think they say that it will be censored somehow. And this is kind of dividing Google in and of itself. I mean, there's former employees, current employees that are protesting this whole action. There is a bipartisan group of lawmakers that are opposed to this. What is the deal with that? So this is Project Dragonfly, the attempt to create filtered, censored search engine for the Chinese search market, which Google left in 2010. They had a previously censored product there, and after some cyber attacks against the company that originated in China, they decided to basically back out of the market. This was hailed by a lot of people publicly as a stand for free speech, for the values that Google stood for. It was hailed internally. And now we're seeing what happens when they say, well, wait a minute, maybe there's a way back into China. We're seeing, yes, that employees are very frustrated, some of them, by this. And there are a lot of lawmaker questions that tap into this broader set of concerns about China's power in the world that we're seeing originating from Washington. In the end, do you think we're going to get anywhere after uh, Sundar faces Congress or is it just going to kind of be the same thing? I know 
data and privacy is going to be a big driver of the conversation, but is anything going to get done after he testifies? So certainly not right away. We're heading into the holidays and then a changeover in congressional leadership of the House. So there's not, you know, an immediate action item that probably comes out of that. That's pretty rare with a hearing like this. On the other hand, lawmakers next year, many of them are calling for a national privacy law. A lot of the companies are calling for a national privacy law, including Google. And they want to get it done before 2020 when the California privacy laws is into effect because there's all this worry about a patchwork of state regulation. So I do suspect that you're exactly right, that data and privacy will sort of drive the conversation going forward. But right away, absolutely not. But I think what will happen is that a lot of Americans, a lot of lawmakers will meet Sundar Pichai for the first time. He's a more low-key CEO among Silicon Valley's you know, major tech CEOs. And I suspect a lot of people will be learning about him and more about Google for the first time. David McCabe, technology reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. photograph of something and then suddenly you know it exists and you go to see it and what's more you know you take a photograph to prove that you were there so it's sort of this self-perpetuating cycle where you see a photo you hunt it down and then you take the same photo again joining us now is laura maloney writer for wired covering photography we saw your article and it seemed to be trying to explain a question that it just becomes truer and truer as the days go by and as technology increases, why we all take the same type of travel photos. It struck me reading through the article, you know, a lot of us are not necessarily native explorers and we find something on a a Pinterest or on somebody else's social media, a picture of somewhere they've been. And we're like, wow, that's great. I want to go to that same place. And inadvertently, I want to take that same exact picture, kind of this, you know, to prove that we were there. It's this whole notion of pics or it didn't happen. So tell us a little bit about why we do all end up taking the same travel photos. There's a whole body of tourism research that's been devoted to this for several years. Basically, it kind of starts out, the sociologist Dean McCannell had this really influential book in the 1970s where he talks about, you know, how tourist sites are created. And basically, the number one reason is because of photographs, because of mechanical reproduction. You see a photograph of something, and then suddenly you know it exists, and you go to see it. And what's more, you know, you take a photograph like you said, to prove that you were there. So it's sort of this self-perpetuating cycle where you see a photo, you hunt it down, and then you take the same photo again. And these tourist locations have taken note of this. I mean, I took a trip to Costa Rica and there's this amazing waterfall there, but they had created this whole series of steps and a little landing platform where you can take your pictures there. They have railings so people don't step over too far and fall off. Even these attractions set it up that way so that you can and take the optimal picture, the one that you know everybody wants. Right. And that's been something that's been going on for years. I think as early as the 1920s, Kodak actually created these picture spots where they put these signs up, basically telling you what to photograph and where to stand to get the best view and the best picture to take back home. And that's definitely something that, you know, you see a lot of. You can be driving down the highway in the middle of America and you see a sign that for the world's biggest barn or some random thing that you would have never known about before, but you go there just to take the photograph of it. And we move on into even more modern times. Now there's apps. I mean, a lot of people go on to Pinterest and see other people's vacations. One that you mentioned in your article was Explorist, which will Mm -hmm. tell you where the cool spot for the picture is, how to get there. It'll give you directions or GPS location. These things are being staged even more and more. It hasn't really stopped as more, you know, more 
people are going on trips now, more people are taking weekenders and yearly trips to Europe, whereas before it was something that was a little bit more rare. But as this has happened, we haven't really seen a decrease in photographs. It's just become more prevalent than ever. And people are continuing to take those same iconic photographs of the Eiffel Tower or the Leaning Tower of Pisa or whatever. And it's not like people don't know that they're quoting something. They're taking a photograph that they've already seen, but they still do it. Yeah. And you mentioned in your article, too, just what other writers have written about photography and about taking these pictures, photographing something as a way of possessing it. And we want to collect all these photographs to kind of collect the world to remind us that we've been there. But there's been studies that have been done where they say that if you take a picture, sometimes you're not that likely to remember it even. I think definitely it can be good or bad. We've all seen tourists who just walk up to something and take a picture, you know, before they've even seen it. It can definitely be a very mindless activity. I, I remember a couple years back, I was at the British Museum and people were taking these flash photographs of these really fragile mummies that were several thousand years old. And it didn't seem like they were lingering that long after they took the photograph to actually think about this thing and, right. and what it is. So I, I think that's certainly true, that it can be sort of a rejection of experience in a way, sort of a crutch in a way, but it can also be a good thing. If used correctly, it can be a transformative thing that sort of leads you to a deeper interaction between you and the thing that you're photographing. It's an interesting thing, these mental souvenirs, these memories that you make when you're there, and pictures obviously help. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is go back and look at pictures and Oh man, I remember this and and look at for and look li- for little details in the pictures like oh look at this silly person in the background things like that. You know, kind of help <laughs> right. you remember the experience in much fuller detail. But you're right, if you're just there taking the quick picture and not really experiencing it, you're doing yourself a disservice. What kind of tips could you give somebody? You could take the standard tourist pic but also look for something more. There's an imperfection in something or something that stands out to you. These are the things that you should be photographing. I think the the point of having a camera, it's not just to walk away with a photograph, but it's to linger and to really look at what you're visiting and what you've come to see. Sometimes it means turning your camera from the thing that you've come to photograph and taking in what's around you and lingering and taking your time. I've had that experience, which I talk about in the piece. When I was in high school, I went on this trip to Italy and I got in a lot of trouble with my teachers just because I was constantly slowing down and (laughs) lagging behind and you were that person in the group (laughs) I was super annoying just stopping every few seconds to take a photograph and I wasn't really taking pictures of anything unique it was kind of the cliche stuff that you expect to see in Italy but it was still incredibly meaningful to me and I think that this whole experience of taking photographs when we travel we tend to minimize it as being something cliche and why are you going to take a picture of that but it can be a meaningful experience if you wield it right I think the big takeaway is don't be afraid to take those touristy pictures and the ones that everybody else does, but <laughs> but take that little bit of time to focus on something else and maybe, yeah, like you said, something that's more meaningful to you, make sure to get those things as well. Laura Maloney, writer for Wired, covering photography. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.